Welcome to this week in sparkling water. My name is Joachim Eriksson. Uncle Joachim. And I'm the host. I'm the uncle of this week in sparkling water. Oh man, went to bed feeling good, woke up feeling terrible, went for a run, feel a little bit better, big sense of panic in my heart. You know how it goes. It's a Wednesday. I'm just going to go straight into something I, I was thinking about while running. It's, um, you know, there's like this trope, this thing we complain about, this thing everyone is aware of, which is like, you have friends, and then when the friends get into a relationship, they drift away from you. That's like a thing that happens. And from my perspective, it mostly, I mean, it's not gendered, it happens in all different kinds of ways. But from my perspective, it's mostly like, you're a group of dudes, you're all friends, you spend time together, and then one of y'all gets in a relationship, and then that person just drifts away. And it's, <clears throat> excuse me, it's interesting to me that we never unpack that. Like, why though? Like, why is that? Like, all we, we just approach it with jealousy and hurt feelings, and we never go beyond those, like, so, but why though? And I think we're afraid of unpacking it because it really just is rejection. Like, we think of it just as we get rejected. They want to hang, like, my bro wants to hang out with his girlfriend more than he wants to hang out with me. And it's, um, it's hard to punch through that initial sense of rejection and get any, and have anything interesting to say about it. But, but I really, I've been thinking about it and I really, it's very interesting in the case of <clears throat> Javi, my bro. Javi is such an interesting guy because like he's so different from me and he was single for a really long time and he was always just one of the bros. And you could always tell though that he was a little bit different from all the other bros, but that he was really at peace with himself and that he just was at peace with knowing that he's a little bit different from the bros. And... um And then he got a girlfriend and what became really clear to me watching him in this relationship is that so much of what it is, is finding the, fr having friends and finding a partner. So much of it is just a journey of looking for a space where we can truly be ourselves, where we can like truly be comfortable. So when you have a bunch of bros and your friends, that is a space where you, more than before you had those bros, you feel like you can be yourself. You know, whatever it was before, the workplace, school, <clears throat> a more performative space where you have to like um, be something specific. And then you get these really good bros and you can like really be yourself. But the thing is that when you get into a relationship there's like a gendered thing that falls away where you can like truly be yourself. Like a good relationship is something, I don't know, this is like a very unformed thought, but with Javi, I just see it so clearly how like when you get in a good relationship, you can truly, all the gender norms fall away because you're just two people. And there's this, um, you know, the ancient Greek idea of like, 
you become, you, <clears throat> you're uh, two halves of one creature or whatever, and you find your other half or whatever, and you really just like, yeah, gender sort of dissolves there. You just have all these different suction cups that, that line up with each other. And um, you can be soft and girly and boily. And like, you can have a silly goose time where you can like be hard. Or you can be cool or you can like be really raw and cry or whatever. And you can do all those things in a relationship. I don't know. I don't think this thought is coming together very good but but it's it's interesting to me how i think that's what it is for a lot of people and the desire to or the the push to abandon your bros and be in a relationship is about how you can truly be yourself but there's this other dark side of it where there's so much power there because once you've found a space once you spent a bunch of time on the couch there with some girl in a relationship and you f can truly be yourself, there's this corrupting of it where like you really just want to get back to, you can truly be yourself, but yourself changes and you become like a complaining negative person. And then you just become two people who bicker and you truly, you don't notice it, but like there's a slide where like you were truly yourself in the beginning and you felt so free and you're still free. But now the you, it's not that the free changed, but the you changed. And now you're like slightly more negative and slightly more complainy and bickery and you don't get along and there's a bunch of things that you can argue about. And then maybe, you know, I don't know, feels negative to say this, but like my biggest example of like when I was married, that was an example of that where I was just so myself. And then it got so bad because of the power of how much I wanted to be myself and how much I enjoyed being myself there in the beginning. And what I see with Javi, now I'm not going to air Javi's laundry completely here, but I'm going to air a little bit of it. What I see with Javi a little bit is that there was, there's like this thing that happened in the beginning where he really found something that he'd been waiting for for a long time, which was a space and a couch that he could collapse down on where he could truly be himself with another person. And it was something I couldn't give him, you know? It was a level of, there's like a, a weird, <laughs> there's like a weird hippie vibe. Or, I mean, there, these things are super abstract. Like what it is me and Hav don't share. I don't know that there's a word for it, but, but Javi's this kind of earthy guy, you know, and he's earthy and he has all these ideas and he's really creative and he's a music making man. And, and there are all these things about him that we don't share. And he found a couch that he could lay on with a woman that where he could truly be himself. And and there was something there that we didn't share. And, and he really enjoyed being himself. And then, you know, six, nine, 12 months later, there's something going on where, like, he lost it. And there's a lot of negativity. But it's so hard to escape because of the goodness of the initial feeling in the beginning when he was truly himself. And now there's a bunch of poison and everything, but, but, um, man, it's hard to stop drinking that poison because 
that initial thing is so good. I'm going to say one, I'm going to just tell one anecdote because it made me really mad and I, and I, and I was there. So I have the right to say this because it made me really mad. It's like, <clears throat> Javi is this beautiful, generous person who will do things for you, expecting absolutely nothing in return. Like, he has the least transactional understanding of friendship of anyone I've ever met. And he has so many friends around town that he sees rarely, but when he sees them, I just know that there's no tally in his mind of, like, who owes him what. And and I, I just know that he has this ability to be be really true, really quick with people. But so he he's helped me with so many things, so many more things than I've helped him with. That's the that's the background to this anecdote that I'm going to tell. He has helped, like, I never had a car. I bought my first car a year ago when I was 34. And I ne- didn't know anything about cars. And he taught me everything that you need to know to not fuck it up immediately in the beginning. And he let me borrow his car and I fucked his car up. He didn't give a fuck. And he helped me with so many things. And there's so little I can do for him because all of my skills are like just sitting with bad posture in front of a laptop, you know? That's where all my skills apply. And he doesn't need anything like that. He has a, he has a, a 12 year old MacBook that he o- cracks open like, you know, once every two years. So, <clears throat> When I realized that he doesn't do his taxes, I was like, fuck, Javi, you got to do your taxes and I'm going to help you do your taxes. Because, like, I have a little bit of a business degree. I have a little bit of an undergrad degree in business administration. We took some accounting classes. I just do my taxes normal. We're just going to do it normal. It takes no specific skill, but I think I know how to do this. We're just going to go on TurboTax and do it. And so I tell him that well in advance of the tax deadline. And I'm like, look, Javi, I think... If you want to do them, I'm not, I don't know if it's a good idea for you to do them. Maybe there's some reason you don't need to file, whatever. But if you want to do them, I'll help you. And he was like, yeah, I'm really stressed out about it. I really want to do it. So yeah, if you could help me with that, that would be great. And then I reminded him a couple of times and it was like all good. And I was going to help him with it. And then there's this one day, I, it was like a week before the deadline. We talked about it and we're like, let's do it tomorrow. And then there was something that came up that day. So two days later, we're doing it again. And then we sit down and do it. And and now it's a little bit of a time crunch. I got to go to work in a couple of hours. He's home. He's hanging out with the girl. And um, and he was like, oh, yeah, can we do it now? Can you help me with this? And so we sit down and we do it. And it takes many hours, right? So we, like, sit down and we get some of the papers ready. And then we got to get some other paperwork. So it it's there's a couple of installments. And then at some point he's like, he asks me again, like, can we keep going? Can you help me with it? Oh, shit, my mic stand is fucking broken here. There. Um, and here's the thing that made me mad. That's the anecdote. This man who has helped me with so many things. I owe him so many things. He spent so much time helping me in so many ways, and I never help him with anything. My first opportunity to help him with anything, the girl makes fun of him for it. And when he says, hey, can you help me with this? She goes, wah, wah, I'm a baby, help me. That's what she kept saying. Wah, wah, I'm a baby, help me. And it made me so mad because it's like, ah. Because it's a poor person. It's this, 
really? There's this book that I find extremely upsetting called Rich Dad, Poor Dad by Robert, Robert Kiyosaki or something like that. Jesus, I think I just said a different Japanese last name, but it's something like that. And this book is like how it's basically how to raise a Republican. But there's a point in the book, though, about how there's a poor person mindset of being afraid of money, being afraid of talking about money, being afraid to ask for help, being afraid to borrow money. Whereas like a rich person mindset is just, you just got to go, just go, just ask for help, just borrow the money, just do it, just build, just have your money working for you. Just next thing, next thing. Okay. It didn't work. Okay. Those people hate me now. I couldn't pay them back. Whatever. Next thing, next thing. And you just go. And it's like, the truth is somewhere in the middle, but there's, and this now ties into like an AA thing where it's like what you keep saying in AA is like the strong, like you are, the, it's a true sign of strength to ask for help. That's the point of what I'm saying. And it's a true sign of weakness to be afraid to ask for help. And in this case, like Javi, I really want to help him and he's, there's some stuff, I don't know, I don't want to be, I can't get too specific about this, but it's just like, I really think that there needs to be a shift of mindset in terms of, I, I, gotta, I think we got to get to a little bit more success here. And I think he needs to change a couple of things there. And I really want to help him. And this girl is, that in that moment, look, this is a wonderful woman. This is a wonderful woman who makes him incredibly comfortable to be himself. She has so many redeeming qualities, but she has some flaws. And this was a thing that made me so mad because that's one of her flaws. Like the idea that you make fun of someone for asking for help is such a like two poor people crawling in the dirt in the bottom of society, holding each other, just keeping each other down. And it made me so mad because it's like the absolute opposite of what he needs to hear. He needs to just hear that it's okay to ask for help because he never asks for help. And he just does everything himself. And he needs to just integrate and allow himself to be successful with other people. And for her to, because I could tell she was like, wah, wah, I'm a baby, I need help. When she says that, I could tell how he was like, he felt humiliated. And then he asks me for help to do his taxes in a humiliated way where in the, I can tell from his face that he's like, okay, I'm asking you for this now and I will never ask anyone for help ever again. And that seeing that in, in him made me so sad and it made me so mad because it's like, fuck, that's the absolute opposite of the lesson that we should be learning here. Oh, man. <clears throat> anyway, she's a wonderful person and I hope they work it out and... I hope they learn how to ask for help and, and be successful. Because, you know, the other end of the spectrum, and this is the thing I always bring up because it's almost like not even a real person. It's almost just like a theoretical idea. It's my ex-wife's dad, who's like this mega wealthy Republican guy. And <clears throat> every day there would... 
his the way the theoretical guy like that lives his life is that every day there's just like a cardboard box that just shows up at his doorstep of shit that he didn't even order. It's like big old steaks on dry ice, you know, that some guy who wants to be in his good graces sent him for free. Every day there's just gifts and whatever he goes to do, people just give it to him for free and he never has to pay for anything. And there's this mentality of you deserve it. And then there's this mentality of like, when there's any kind of problem, you're, you have a right to complain. You have a right to complain. You have a right to ask for your money back. You have a right to ask for extra shit. And the poor person mindset is just be like, oh shit, I paid for this and now I'm not getting it. And oh well, oh well, I don't want to complain. And everything feeds into this because like as a poor person, you always identify more with like the human being, the service worker standing in front of you at the counter at the airport selling the tickets. You know, you missed your flight. Oh, well, I paid for this flight. I fucking don't get my money back. I don't get a flight. Oh, well, I'm a poor person. I don't want to complain because the person at the ticket counter, I relate to that person. Whereas a rich person is just like, bitch, give me my money back. I'm not on this flight. Why would I pay for it? Give me a new ticket and this ticket, you better upgrade me, you know? Rich people get upgraded every time. Anyway, whatever. That's boring. Let's talk about something else. So last night I um I finished Elden Ring. I finished the video game. It took I played it for 120 hours. I was extremely addicted to it. I couldn't stop playing it. I'd be at work and I just for the first time like before starting this video game Ever, always when I'm at work, I'm just at work. Like I'm really present in the moment. I'm really present at the task. And I have a lot of patience for the task. And if there's a problem, I'm really happy to like work on it and focus on it. <clears throat> and then for the duration of playing this video game, part of me was just like so addicted to it that I would just felt feel pulled out of work physically and mentally just pulled out of it and i would just be sometimes i'd say it out loud i'd just be like i wish i was just home playing video games right now and when there's a problem at work i would have this like knee-jerk reaction to be like oh fuck all of this i don't want to deal with this i'm i'm gonna leave right now and go play video games now i never did because <laughs> i'm a grown man but i wanted to so it is like in that sense it is addiction and in that sense it's bad addiction but and this was kind of the first experiment I ran with playing a video game. But it was, there are certain things about it that are good, you know? It is an addiction where we don't put drugs or alcohol in our body. And the big one is, I have this rule where I'm only going to play video games that have a storyline, which is like a rise and a fall and an end point. And once you read the reach the end point, the theory is, the hypothesis is that the addiction will then be broken. And so... The thing about drugs and alcohol is you do them and you become addicted and there's no fucking end point to that storyline. It keeps going. And the thing is that yesterday I reached that end point and it pretty much worked. I played this game for 120 hours. It took about a month and a half, a little bit more. And for that month and a half, I was really in it. And then I was, the addiction was broken. And I had to let myself down a little bit slowly I finished it at like 2 a.m. And I got this. It was actually funny. I play this video game for 120 hours. You get to an ending. There are all these different endings where you get to see different cutscenes depending on choices you made in the game. And then 
I'm watching this cutscene, and it's only a 30-second cutscene, but 15 seconds in, I see myself on this throne, which is like the pinnacle of this 120-hour experience, and I and I hit print screen on my on my keyboard because I want to take a screenshot and I want to and I want to have this moment forever, right? I want to take a picture of this moment of me sitting on the throne. And then because I print the print screen, that like crashed the game and triggered some like like some pop-up came up from Dropbox where Dropbox was like, hey, would you like Dropbox to save your screenshots? And that crashed the game. So I didn't actually get to see the second 15 seconds. That's <laughs> so anticlimactic. Oh, God, you spend so much time on something and then you get to the 30-second climax. And then that's it. You, It's over. You don't get to see the second 15 seconds. Like, oh, God. I would like to talk about sex on the podcast, but but there's definitely a thing in male sex where like sometimes when you when you come, if there's an interference at a specific point right on the last moment before what word are we gonna use now? Are we gonna use the word climax? Are we gonna use the word come? All the words are disgusting. Let's not use any of those words. Uh if something interrupting happens the moment before the important moment you can get to the point where like nothing happened and now you can't get there and now nothing now there's nothing here for you and you can just go home and this wasn't one and my Elden Ring experience was a little bit like that but so then I already had this queued up that I knew that there were six main endings to the games, triggering six different cutscenes, six different little films. And so I had this YouTube video in my to-do list where I was like, when I finish the game, just watch this. Because then I won't feel the need to replay it and get all the different endings. I'm just going to watch this YouTube compilation of all six endings back to back. So I sit down and I just watch this like 15-minute video of all the endings. And it was very nice. I got to see the last 15 seconds. It wasn't the same. It didn't have the same gravity. It didn't have the same load. Oh, God, that's a disgusting sexual connotation word. And I would like to renounce and deject myself for using that word. Oh, God. But it was still good. It was still good. I watched the compilation and I felt myself, I felt the addiction breaking in that moment it was like all these claws. It's like it's like this thing has like a hundred claws in you. And I can just hear this ticking sound of one by one the claws just like just like coming out of you. Just like the claws are just coming just like letting go of your flesh. Just like one by one, the one hundred claws are so it doesn't happen in one moment. It's not all hundred let go in one moment. So I watched that and then I still felt like I still have fifty claws in me. I still don't have this complete sense of completion, if you will. Um, so I found a different YouTube compilation video watching, wh which where they compile. Excuse me, little burp there. Um, where they compiled compiled every cutscene in the entire game into a one hour YouTube video. So I watched this and I skipped through it a little bit. Some parts are boring and I remember them really clearly and nothing interesting happens in them. So I watched that and it's like an hour, another hour. But I feel with each moment, I do feel myself not getting pulled into the game more. I do feel like the tendrils and the claws are coming out 
and it's just like the addiction is, I just feel done with it. I feel done with it because there's many reasons why you wouldn't feel done with it. Because you, there are all these endings, there are all these play styles, there are all these things you could... I played this, um, I got to level 170, I played, my main weapon was the Rivers of Blood, upgraded it completely, I did Tish, which is a summon, Black Knife Tish, upgraded Tish completely, purists will say that it's cheating to even have a summon, because that's a buddy, because that buddy is just helping you out, um... I took down Melania on the 10th try like it was nothing. Maybe I should be a pro gamer. Maybe I'm really, really good. Other people took weeks doing it. It took me like 30 minutes. I put 60 on Arcane, and that's the end of that's the end of the nerdy things, I'll say. You know? I said a couple of nerdy things there, and that's the end of it. But so there are different play styles. Like partly I wanted to be like, what if I just learn how to do a magic? What if I played again and do magic this time? But I tried to do that mid-game. I respect and tried to do magic, and it was, like, boring. I liked my Rivers of Blood where you have a sword, you have this katana that has, like, a really good reach. So you just wander through this game, and you just you just, just throw your knife around it, and it's like has this really good reach and everything. It just cuts through butter. It just cuts through everything like butter, and you... And everything just dies real quick and it's just like real easy. And I just, maybe I like it easy and it's fine. But so I watched this one hour compilation of all the cutscenes. And when I got to the end, it was like 3 a.m. And I go in the bedroom and I, I boot up the old gaming rig and I just uninstalled the game. And, and, and it was, I'm going to say that the experiment was a success. The experiment of being an addict who can be addicted to anything, who needs some kind of escapism, something to fill the void, some kind of recreation that doesn't destroy my mind and body, but something that isn't too addictive. I want to say that it, this as an experiment, buying this computer and playing a game, it, it was a success because, because it had an endpoint. It actually reminds me a little bit of how <clears throat> there are like, Sometimes people talk about drugs in different classes and they talk about drugs of addiction. And then they talk about how some drugs are not drugs of addiction, like acid, LSD. And there's this thing about LSD where if you wake up in the morning and you have a good night's rest and then at 11 a.m. you take a good amount of LSD and then you spend the day just kind of like confused and your ego's deconstructed and you visually hallucinate and maybe you wander around in the sun or in the forest or maybe you sit in your room and listen to music whatever you do you have this really profound big experience most likely that can be quite therapeutic quite interesting but it, it and quite stressful it can be seem quite stressful but then it sort of fades it's a long experience it can take like 10 12 hours but 12 hours later you it it is clearly begun to fade and you're more and more in reality again. And the thing about that moment at the 12th, 13th hour is that you can feel quite tired from having had this big experience. But the key thing there is you can feel quite clearly that your first thought, your first inclination at that point is not that you want to do it again. You can feel quite satisfied with it and you can feel quite tired of it. And you can feel like you had a big experience that really gave you something. And now you kind of want a good night's rest and maybe drink some water and maybe just like recover for a bit. And you don't have, there's not much desire to do it again. 
And that's the key difference between drugs of abuse and, and the few ones that aren't. You know, like, I don't know. I mean, we don't talk about drugs like this on the podcast because it's not good and drugs are illegal and we shouldn't have been doing drugs. But if you ever did a little bit of cocaine, if you did a little bit of cocaine, 20 minutes later, the cocaine is fading in your body and, and every fucking fiber, every cell has momentum and every cell has a desire and an urge to do more. And that's what we call drugs of addiction. And those are the things we can't be doing anymore. And that's like when you play video games that are online where you just play with your friends and there's no storyline and you can play forever. That's that cocaine. That's that thing you plug into the wall and you boot it up and it's got a graphics card and and you got a gaming mouse and that's cocaine. You got a good internet connection? Luckily, I don't have a good internet connection, so none of that online shit even... I couldn't do it if I wanted, but I also don't want to go there because of the same reason I don't want to do cocaine. But yeah, so I finished the game yesterday at 1 a.m. and then I had to let myself down slowly by watching a couple of videos to just decompress. Then I actually just watched a video. There's a pro pro Twitch pro gamer guy. His name is Dr. Disrespect. Now we're in real nerd territory. He, his name is Dr. Disrespect. He dresses up. He plays video games. He streams it on Twitch. And you can watch him play video games, which is such a sad sign. The fact that that's what we do is such a sad sign of the loneliness of our times to me. Because he becomes your friend. And most of the time, we're not honest with ourselves of how it's uh, friendship pornography. But with... A lot of these streamers that get really big where people really love them, people do get honest. People like donate 40 bucks to Dr. Disrespect and in the donation note will write, my friend killed himself six months ago and I wouldn't have made it through if it wasn't for you, Dr. Disrespect. And it's so fucking sad to me that that's what our culture is, that, that people don't, that the, if you poll Americans on how many friends they have, zero or one or two or three or four or five, the most common answer is zero. It's so fucking sad to me. Doesn't mean, that doesn't mean that it's more than 51% that say zero, but it's the most common answer. And that's so sad. And, and so Dr. Disrespect has hundreds of thousands of views on all of these videos. And so I watch a video of Dr. Disrespect playing the last boss honestly actually i didn't i was i thought i was watching a video of him finishing the game because i just wanted to let myself down more and it wasn't he actually i don't think he had i don't think there is a video of him finishing the game i don't think he finished it four days ago he played the last boss and he failed so it's it, it actually and that's something that's relatable in a lot of ways like it's interesting when there's a cultural moment and you experience it in real time like when the tv show lost came out and it was so confusing and such a mystery and everyone in the culture was wondering like where is this show going is it going supernatural is it going sci-fi is it going mystery is it going religious like what is happening in this show 
and it was such a good show and a new episode came out every Saturday and people had these watch parties and all across the society. Lost, I feel like Lost was the first internet era one because in the internet we could communicate more in a broader open ground grassroots level society wide level of communication where everyone could just be like what's going on in the show and there was this this openness to it where everyone was part of the same thing and then there was one that i was sitting out which is game of thrones that seemed like an incredible sight guys thing and sitting that one out was actually incredibly painful because there was so much in the culture about that and not being part of it was a big choice and i feel like i missed the train in the beginning and then i just got rebellious about it and i was like fuck it you guys are lame watching game of thrones and i sat it out and and then i've tried to rewatch it and i've realized that so much of what was good about game of thrones was the zeitgeist and the fact that everyone watched it together you know red wedding there was something that happened fucking 3 seasons in called red wedding and i have no idea what it is but i'm i assume it's like a bunch of people died Maybe it was actually a wedding. Maybe it was an actual wedding where everyone just died. And I wasn't there for it. And there's no way to watch it now because it was a, it was a thing where everyone in, on earth experienced it at the same time. And that was the point of it. And it is a big reason why Jason Momoa is famous because he's played some handsome shirtless character on Game of Thrones. And, you know... Lady panties get wet, you know? Like that guy screams in the beginning of that one song by The Weeknd. When The week, the Weeknd sang and make, make lady, ladies' panties get wet. And J- that applies to Jason Momoa too. And the thing about Elden Ring is that Elden Ring came out and it sold tens of millions of copies in the first two weeks. And everyone had this moment together where we're all like struggling. We all think it's difficult. And... It, there's, there are things about it that are so confusing that it took weeks for anyone on earth to figure it out. And then once the answer entered, and you could go, I don't, but you could go supernatural with this. You could go where like, some people have this idea and it's such, I don't believe in it, but it's such a attractive, fun idea. It's this idea that like, if you put a crossword out, Everyone is struggling to solve this difficult crossword for four days. But then when someone has solved it, the idea is in one human mind. And maybe there's a collective consciousness for everyone on earth. So some people pretend like there are these scientific studies where as soon as the answer is in one person's mind, perhaps it can now spread to the mind of all of these other people because the answer has been formed. And it's such an attractive idea, the idea that we are on some super abstract, subconscious, wordless, preconceptual level connected that like as soon as the answer is in one person's mind, it will now through contagion, through mind meld, through all of our minds being connected, it will now quickly spread to everyone's minds. So and now it's much easier for everyone else to solve the crossword puzzle. It's such a nice idea that we're connected like that. And so on Elden Ring, that was basically a thing where there were things that were difficult to figure out. 
And it took us all as a culture weeks to figure some of those things out, some of those plot lines. It, I mean, and I think that's a shit way to design a game <laughs> where it's so difficult that it takes tens of thousands of players spending hours on it to come up with the answer and then the answer is written on the internet and then the only way to find the answer basically is to read the answer of this guy who just spent 20 hours doing this crazy thing. But, but um, yeah. And I read this one guy who... No, no, I, I listened to this one guy talk on YouTube that was like... Um, he was playing the beta or something, and then he was playing it on the day it came out, and he'd already played for like 60 hours the day it came out because he started before it came out. And then he thinks he was the first guy to get to this weird, very crazy dragon where there's this one part of the game where this city is flung up into the... It's actually the one part of the game that I think visually looks incredible because most of it is ugly and it's goth and it's not my thing. But there's this one part where an entire city is flung up into the sky and it's coming apart. And there's a tornado spinning in the middle and the city is just like on a on this sort of like rings of Saturn, basically like a ring around the tornado of just fragments. So you jump between fragments in this ring around the tornado. But then you get to the lowest point of all those fragments. You find this one weird part where you can jump off the edge and you actually don't fall into the abyss. You actually land on a secret little platform. And then you go from that platform to lower and lower and lower and you just you get to the almost the center of the tornado very low and down there there's this like wall fragment that you stand on because it's sideways and there are all these like um statues on the wall fragment and there's one cubby that doesn't have a statue in it and then you go to that cubby and you lay down and when you do time flows backward and the city is rebuilt the fragment pieces flow backwards and come back together and the city becomes one again and then in this undestroyed city now you fight this ancient dragon which is the original first Elden Lord and all of that is optional and it's like a side thing but the first guy to find that out he described how how crazy it feels to imagine that in this complicated game, because he spent hours and hours not reading about it on the internet, hours and hours just looking for this thing, this name that he knew that there was a thing and he spends hours and hours looking for it. And then to, to lay down and to have it happen and to imagine that maybe he was the first guy of everyone on earth to come up with that answer is a very pleasant, specific feeling. I don't know. There's something about the future in video games and how I think that I think that the collectiveness of it will become bigger and bigger and part of it. I think like artists performing live in the metaverse in video games like Ariana Grande did on a concert in Fortnite that I think is really foreshadowing how you, there you connect a bunch of different things because you connect video game playing, which is something we like, with the loneliness crisis. Because when you... There's something about going to a concert and and watching an artist perform live where the muse, the sound quality is worse, the speakers are worse, everything about it is worse, it's sweaty, you have to stand up. 
everything about the music listening experience is better being just at your house, but there's something about doing it with other people. The ritualistic, you enter this liminal space and then you wait in the liminal space and then it happens. And the ritual of doing it together that chips away at this loneliness crisis in your heart. There's something about how I think live events in video games will be such a huge thing in the in the future because you can make so much money on lo- on the loneliness of all of us because there you you can you can attack a bunch of different parts of the brain at the same time the feeling that you're doing something for the first time and that you're doing it together with people and that you're also just playing a fun video game if 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 a corporation can set up an experience for us that ticks that that tickles all those parts of your brain at the same time. I think that will be some of our most powerful experiences in the future. I think our children, those will be some of the most, some of the most powerful experiences, like having a VR headset and experiencing a live, like I'm a Farb, you know, which is a Phoebe Bridger stan. Like if you, <laughs> If you told me that there was a live metaverse video game experience where I could play a video game that was like fun, um, what was, what was the term? Bubble goth? Bubble grunge? Yeah, there's some term that some people use for Phoebe Bridgers, which is like, it's bubble and then something negative. And it's like, if you could put me some, put something together for me that's like, dark and 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 um sad and depressing but actually visually like a bubblegum thing because i don't like things that are actually dark i want the light to be on and i want everyone to be depressed if you could put some together like which is why the movie midsummer is my favorite movie because like it's so first of all it's swedish and it's hilarious when people ask me about it and i say that i'm midsummer people sometimes but it's just so creative and fascinating to make a truly scary thing where the sun is out the whole time so if you told me that there was a video game experience that I could play where Phoebe Bridgers, uh, the real Phoebe Bridgers is going to be connected to like a motion capture thing and she'll be performing, a VR representation of her will be performing live in a, in a, in a virtual reality world. I would probably, I am not kidding, I would probably pay $5,000 to be part of a VR experience like that where Phoebe Bridgers is playing live and we're all experiencing it together for the first time and it's new and it's fresh and it's also a fun video game and I get to meet other people who want to pay $5,000 to see Phoebe Bridgers like oh yeah but so yeah just the the thing that Dr. Disrespect four days ago uploaded a video, or one of his fans, rather, clipped a video of him playing Elden Ring five days ago, playing the last boss. Just the fact that around this time, it's now been a, two months since Elden Ring came out, around this time, a lot of people are now finishing the game. People who didn't... Like, some people finished it four days after it came out, you know? But a lot... but. Most people, the bell curve of it, I think, you know, two weeks ago, three weeks ago, because I actually waited three weeks or something after it came out to start playing. Just the fact that there's a zeitgeist of how everyone came out 
how everyone is doing it together and, and a lot of us are finishing the game. There's some mind meld collective consciousness pleasure in feeling like we were on this journey together and we kind of came to the end of it. Not at the exact same time, but, but this was what we did in the spring of 2022. And yeah, I was listening to this one, two guys talking on YouTube about how when they recorded it, they did, there's a character in the game called Nephili Lou. Uh, she's the daughter of Hora Lou. Um, she is in some way like an heir of the Elden Ring, whatever. They, what I also, what I hate, I actually really dislike the game. You can't tell from, like, it was scary. I didn't like it. It wasn't explained well. All the buttons are confusing. I had to Google everything, which felt so frustrating and annoying, and I would have just rather understood it myself. But I'm going to say a couple of things that I appreciate about it. What I do appreciate about it is that it's like a truly surreal form of storytelling that's usually um, only for low-budget, artisanal Lars von Trier shit. Like, it's like moving, watching the movie The Lobster. Like, truly, like the Greek new weird wave of movie making. Like, it's truly inexplicable. Like, I played this game for 120 hours, and I couldn't really tell you if Elden Ring, that the name the game is named after, if Elden Ring is a physical object or not in the game. Like, I don't even know. Like, the game is so fucking confusing that, like, there's... They talk about this ring and becoming the Elden Lord. And then they talk about this thing where there's like two, they talk about the two fingers and everyone's like, oh yeah, we have to listen to the two fingers. And then you obviously think that Elden Ring is like not a physical ring and that the two fingers is like maybe two guys or maybe a God or something. But then you enter this room and there's like two giant 20 foot fingers in the room. And you realize that the fingers are physical objects. They're it's a physical creature that's a two finger. And then there's like this corrupted other path you can take where you can instead follow the, the, the frenzied flame, which is that you follow the three fingers and which is this weird cutscene where you enter this room. And the only way to enter the room is to get naked before you enter the room. And when you enter the room, you see this giant 20 foot creature, which is just a hand with like an alien looking hand with three fingers on it. And it's on fire and you walk towards it and it hugs you. And it, the three fingers that are on fire, hold your naked body. And then when you come out of it, your body is burned and you've been branded. And now if you do that, if you go in that room, uh, which is at the bottom of this terrible mausoleum where you have to get just climb through like it's terrifying because in the game there are these like um merchants that ride around on donkeys but they have the they you find them and they have a little campfire every time and a little donkey off to the side and you can talk to them and and um and there's just a few of them maybe there's 10 of them spread out they all have a little campfire and a little donkey but then you get to this muscle scene where there's tens of thousands of dead bodies that look exactly like the merchant and you realize that those merchants used to be a thriving big people and then someone just murdered all of them um and, and stuffed them into this room like the game is just full of weird like nightmare material like that. But so you climb to the very bottom and then you get branded. And then now if you get branded by the three fingers, now you've been locked into however you finish the game, you can only finish it 
one way because you've been branded and now you are destined to burn the entire world down. What was I saying? What was I saying about it? Oh yeah. So what I thought, what I found interesting is that in this video I heard on the internet with two guys on the YouTube on the YouTubes with two guys talking, they're talking about Nephilim Lou, and they're talking about how someone has a lot of information about the game comes from they do data mining where they basically like look at the code, and then you can't you don't understand the code, but you can you can just find um, fragments of dialogue that you know will be somewhere in the game. So you just know that there's dialogue somewhere in the game. And and honestly, you don't know if it's... All you know that it, that dialogue is in the code. So some of it might be defunct and it's not actually in use because they were maybe going to use it so they put, put it in there. But in the final version, it's not going to be visible anywhere in the playable version of the game. But you know that somewhere in the like basement of the code, there's fragments of stuff that they thought about using pieces of dialogue or whatever. So these two guys on the internet are talking about how they know from data mining that there's a storyline where you can get Nephili Lou, this character, to be the, the regent of Limgrave, this one part of the game. And it's so interesting because when those two guys are talking, which is like three weeks after the game came out, no one on earth has figured out how to do it because it's so difficult of a storyline and so confusing. And you have to like go to all these different corners of the map and do all these confusing things that make no sense. And it's super sensitive. And if you do things in the wrong order, the whole thing shuts down and, and the, and the character is now dead or the character doesn't show up or it doesn't happen. So it's like, it's got this incredibly fickle nature to it where people replay the game over and over and over trying to figure out how to get this Nephilim Lou late stage thing to happen where she becomes basically a, a regent, a queen. And then, when I when I was listening to them talk, it was like a month later. And at that point, the community has figured it out. And I'm reading this guide of how to do it. And I did it. And it was incredibly pleasant to get her up on the throne after having listened to this one-hour conversation of two guys talking about how no one in the world knows how to do it because the community hasn't figured it out because it's so fickle of a thing. And I mean... It's so difficult of a game that even cheating feels satisfying. Usually if you cheat, there's no sense of satisfaction to completing something because you cheated. Because you, you, just, you just read someone else's explanation of how to do it. And you just found this cheesy hack for how to do it that you read about on the internet. But this game is so difficult that even when you just read a guide online, it's like it's, you still suffer to make it work. And then when you make it work, it's still pleasant. It's a very strange Japanese thing. Like, it's really like, a tr like only Japanese people could make a game so... And it's a truly anti-human game. There's something about how difficult it is and how everything about it is sad and horrible and nothing's explained and... There's something truly anti-human about it. You know, like you find a sword and the sword has these attributes like if you upgrade your strength, it will be better. It scales with strength. And then there's a, a ranking for how well it scales with something. So you'll find a sword that like ranks very well. A scales with strength 
and like B scales with dexterity, meaning that if you put points on strength, it gets way better. And if you put points on dexterity, it gets a little bit better. And then a lot of times that's just not true. You put points in dexterity and it makes it better. Like they just set everything up and that's such a, can I just, can I just acknowledge that it's such a boring thing, but it's just a truly, I'm just making a point of how it's a very anti-human game. Anyway, I think we got it. Today we're doing tropical. Let's do a water. Let's do a water. And now I don't have decided to play another video game for a little bit. I think I need to take a break. I really enjoy how my schedule has just opened up. It's like it's like new. One of the things about new sobriety that you can learn quickly to feel really good about is how suddenly you have all this time. Where like with drugs and alcohol, you know, 7 p.m. rolls around and you're getting so wasted that there's nothing you can do after 7 p.m. Like you might be able to call your friend and talk about a thing you wanted to talk about, but you're not going to be talking about it well. And there's nothing on your to-do list that gets done. Okay, so first one here, signature select, mango pineapple. Because this episode we're doing tropical. We're doing mango pineapple. Smells way too sweet. Yeah, that's terrible. That smell, that tastes mostly like sweetener. Yeah, that's a 1 out of 10. Also, we got my pants completely wet. Because outside of the bottle was wet. Um, yeah. There's a bunch of small things I could talk about. Here's one thing I was thinking about that's another unformed thought. I have long thought about this thing. I'm just going to go ahead and say what prompted this thing. It's like I was hanging out with Katie last week and she was telling me how her probably ex-boyfriend, one of the issues with him was that he's like a white boy used the N-word sometimes for comedy. And I find that so fascinating because I relate to it. I relate to it from, because it's, here's the thing, it's fun to be edgy, but here's the thing people don't acknowledge about that. It's only fun to be edgy when it feels safe to be edgy, when you feel like you're not making the world a worse place. And so when I was living in Seattle, everyone around me was mega extreme left wing, and I'm out here being center left. So I feel good about how everyone is, ultimately we agree on like, yeah, you know, racism is alive and well in America and we all need to work for racial justice, you know? You know, the world is super unfair to women. We all need to work towards gender freedom. We all need to deconstruct gender roles. Excuse me, a little disgusting burp there. You know, believe all women, everything, like... Ultimately, I know that I'm in a safe place where if push, push comes to shove, I love the values of these people around me. But in that safe space, it's super fun to be edgy. And I remember living with Marissa. Marissa, studying to be a social worker, extreme hard left. And Marissa is like half Cuban or whatever, grew up speaking Spanish with her grandmother or whatever. And I remember sometimes I'd, 
I would say, I remember the one time I said something where I was like, we talked about a word in Spanish and, or I brought up a word in Spanish and I said something like, yeah, that's how you say it in Mexican. That's what I said, which is a joke because I know Mexican isn't the language. I know it's called Spanish. And then I say it because I know that I'm teasing her because she doesn't like that. And then it turned into a bad thing because she really didn't like it. And she like blew up at me and was like, bro, I grew up in Southern California. I was surrounded by fucking racists. And they would say shit like that to me because I spoke Spanish with my grandmother and I grew up speaking only Spanish. And they would make fun of me and they'd say I'd speak in Mexican. And like to her, it was like super real. But to me, it was like very safe. And it's safe because it's safe because I'm in control. Here's what people don't acknowledge about it. You feel in control when you know that you are the edgiest person in the room. And then as soon as someone comes into the room who is, because there's not just like three ways of being, there's like a hundred ways of being. You could plot this on a spectrum. You could sort of plot it on a one-dimensional spectrum and you could have a hundred different levels of being edgy where like you could have some Antifa motherfucker hang out with some motherfucker who's just slightly less Antifa and they could say something that's like, oh, I wish I had some better examples of stuff where you could have two Antifa motherfuckers hanging out and then one of them is like, maybe not all cops are complete. Maybe not all cops should die. And then everyone in the room gets super pissed and the guy thinks it's super funny to say that because it's edgy. You know, even that far out on the left, it can be fun to be edgy just because you know that you are pushing the envelope with people. And then you get to a space where there's people that are edgier than you. It's almost the word edgy is wrong. It's the, the word says good and bad. I liked being in Seattle because I knew one thing I didn't like being in Seattle, but one thing I liked be about being in Seattle was that I felt like everyone around me was good, gooder than me. So I could be a little bit bad and it could be funny and it could be safe. And I could be a little bit bad without it feeling like I was making the world a worse place and without it feeling like <sighs> this is so difficult to I don't know. I think that there's something there that's important because like we don't acknowledge how we mutually affect each other here. That's the issue. We mutually all have an effect on each other. And when I moved down to California, here, this is the whitest county in California, um, Nevada County, all white people, but every kind of white person, you know? Catholic extreme religious hippies, flat earther hippies, you know, lots of people from the, on the left, lots of liberals, every kind of liberal, liberal hippies, anti-vaxxer liberals, every kind of anti-vaxxer, lots of different types of privilege. And here I much less feel safe. Here I often feel like I don't trust people to be gooder than me. And when I'm in a room like that, it sucks all the fun out of the room. It sucks all the fun out of saying something bad. When I worry that the world might actually be bad, like the atmosphere might actually be bad, it's not fun at all to be bad.
And then Katie's telling me she's got this, she's got this friend. She, no, she's got this boyfriend that likes to use the N word and be a white guy who uses the N word, but only with his friends. And it's fun to be bad a little bit. I relate to how it's fun to be bad. And then some of it was like, yeah, I mean, I don't know. I relate to it because this one time I told Marissa that that's how you say it in Mexican. I don't know. Mm. It's just a weird experience. It will just always be a weird experience. And it's an experience that a lot of people have where where people like, people, our language has a way to turn everything into this binary thing where I'd be like a hella left-wing person in my own mind hanging out with these ultra left-wing people in Seattle and they'd call me a right-winger. And then here in California, everyone calls me mega fucking libtard, you know? Because the truth is that it's it's complicated. But, um, yeah, I don't know. Ten episodes ago, I had this one rant where I was like, I think I should be more... I think I should take things more seriously, and I think I shouldn't be so amused by how it's funny to be bad. I think if we want to be grown-ups and take things seriously... That style of... Dr. Luke was obsessed with that style of comedy. Behind closed doors, politically incorrect, bad guy comedy. But he had this excuse where he was like, no, no, it's gallows humor. We make fun of how people die all the time because we have to watch people die and the only way to process it is to just do comedy. And then when you do comedy, you're depressed for some of the time, but you do a little bit of comedy and it gives you a little bit of light and it makes it so you can go to work and be a doctor and save lives. And and it's like, man, if that's, you know, that's a pretty convincing way to, you know, if you got to use the N-word to save lives, <laughs> then maybe you're allowed to use the N-word, you know. Maybe you're allowed to use the N-word with your white guy bros. and Maybe you're allowed a little bit of locker room talk if it helps you save lives, you know? It's a tough thing to argue with. It's a tough, it's a tall drink of water, that argument, you know? No, you're not allowed to say things that are funny like that. It's a tall drink of water, I tell you. Yeah, I don't know. I'm just, for some reason, I've always been fascinated with this feeling of how when I'm with people that are closer to what, what my ideals are, closer than even I am, I feel so safe in that space. And then I feel like it's safe to play around with it a little bit and be Donald Trump and, and just say outrageous things because it's funny. And then when I'm surrounded by people who whose opinion is I don't agree with, I don't feel safe and it's not funny at all to say bad things. It's so weird to me that the same um, jokes and responses and outrageous statements are so funny in one context and so not funny in a different context. Anyway, whatever. Let's drink another water. 
All right, Soul Ale, which is a thing from Signature Select. This one is pineapple flavored. Oh, spoiler alert. I love all pineapple flavored sparkling water. Here's the problem. The last one said sparkling water beverage, and it was basically flavored like a soda. This one also says sparkling water beverage, but it's flavored like a sparkling water. But the only difference is they do a new line, sparkling water, new line beverage. So maybe that's what it means. It's like the great Chairman Mao said, if you're... If your wording is off by one millimeter, your conclusion will be off by 10,000 miles. Maybe we have to focus on these incredible details of typography and font and word usage. New line, new line, new line. Oh, man. Let us talk of many things. Maybe that's what I'll call this episode. Um, because that's the name of a book of speeches, collected speeches by William F. Buckley, famous 1900s American racist, William F. Buckley. Racist, bad values, good at naming books, though, because that's a good book title. Let us talk of many things. It's just nice. Here's another thing. I um I was on YouTube listening to this one rabbi who is it really into chess? Everyone knows I love chess. Listening to this rabbi talk about chess and how he loves chess and and he was talking about how he went to Riyadh to watch Michael uh, Michael Magnus Carlson <laughs> Michael Jordan. He watched Michael Jordan chess master. Um, he, he flew to Riyadh to watch Magnus Carlsen. He, and he said one nice thing about it, which was like, he's like, we have this, we're living at a time where there's this truly extraordinary chess champion living. And I've always sort of thought that, but I've never really acknowledged it. My, Magnus Carlsen might be a very extraordinary Maybe a really a little bit special of a chess master. Maybe he's not just, maybe he's a little bit better than some of these other ones. So maybe I should make it a thing in my life to, at one point in my life, see Magnus Carlsen play live. I think I would really enjoy that. I've watched so many Agad Mator which is a Russian YouTuber uh, deconstructing chess games, talking through them move by move. I've watched him break down maybe, you know, a hundred Magnus Carlsen moves. And I've always had this strange sense of affinity because both of our names are Magnus. And we're both sixes. We're both not very handsome. Self-deprecating. Um, but so this rabbi flies to Riyadh, and then he said this thing where he was like, he came back from Riyadh. He lives in Los Angeles. Um, he's a Jew. The fact that I'm t saying that he's a rabbi means that you should know that he's a Jew. But let, let me just say it out loud. So he flies to Riyadh and his friend is like, what do you think of Riyadh? His friend who had lived in Riyadh for a long time. He's like, what do you think of Riyadh? And he was like, yeah, I mean, I guess it's kind of like a, 
a Vegas in the middle of in the Middle East without all the gambling. It's sort of like that. It's such like a weird neon thing. And then his friend said this thing where he was like, "Yeah, that's because you flew there from Los Angeles." Is why you say that. But try flying there from Yemen. And that's a thing that I always say that I've never heard anyone else say. People always fly to Hong Kong. I'm always meeting people and they are like, oh yeah, I was in Hong Kong. And then I ask them what they think about it. And they're like, yeah, it's such a cool Asian city. It's like so Asian. And I always ever visited Hong Kong from living in Shanghai mostly, maybe Hangzhou, maybe Beijing, but mostly I would fly in from, you know, you go to Guangdong and then you go to Hong Kong real quick. You live in Shanghai, you go to Hong Kong. I went to Hong Kong like seven or eight times. And the thing about it is like, when you go to Hong Kong from Shanghai, you go and you you see this British city. It's like there's really, I don't know. I guess this is a stupid point, but but it just feels really mind-blowing when you're there. The context of where you're coming from when you go to a city really changes what the city is. If you live in Shanghai and you go to Hong Kong, you think you're in the UK. And really, half of the city is so Asian and so covered in vines and banana leaf and just like kudzu vines and these tropical, almost like a rainforest canopy bullshit and dirt an Asian rickshaw, really sort of low-key Asian ghetto kind of look. But but more than anything, you just you're in you think you're in London. But really it's 50-50. It's London with it's London in a rainforest, you know? But I always just thought it was so frustrating when people fly from the West and they go to Hong Kong. And the London is invisible to them because you take that for granted because that's where you were from. But so the, the 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 rabbi has this moment where he's like, he flies to Riyadh from, from Los Angeles and he thinks it's just like this Vegas in the Middle East. And then he comes home and his friend is like, yeah, well, try flying there from Yemen. And then he has this <laughs> realization that it's, it's actually a city where Riyadh, I'm going to out myself now as I didn't actually Google any of this before the episode, but Riyadh, I think, is the capital of Saudi Arabia, if I'm not wrong. Uh, Riyadh is um, a, an open city where, sure, women have to cover up a little bit, a lot, but it's a city, it's a melting pot. There's pla- There's people from all over, and it's actually just thinking of it as a, stupid Vegas in the Middle East annihilates how there's this richness to the tapestry of humanity. Both Hong Kong and Riyadh, the thing about them are that they are these cities where it's at the intersection of so many different people and so many different people contribute to it. And so many people made it what it is and there's something like ever changing about the rainbowness of that and there's something about how our mind cannot take it all in at once so the context of where we are coming from 
will greatly affect what you see. Depending on where you're coming from, Hong Kong can be five different things, you know? With no overlap. Yeah. I love Hong Kong so fucking much. I need to stop moving around. I need to just stay here because it doesn't matter where you are. The important thing is to just not be lonely. And I need to stay here and I need to make friends here and I need to buy some property and I need to have a life. But if I was a person who had to move, if I had to end up somewhere and if I could take all my friends, I I would love to end up in Hong Kong. And with that, Liquid Death, Mango Chainsaw. Don't know what the pun is. Oh, that's actually so good. Liquid death. God. Ugh. Same inclination that made someone, that made the Japanese create Elden Ring is, you put the same inclination in an American and he'll make a, a sparkling water called liquid death. Murder your thirst. God, I hate goth. I hate goth everything. Then Katie was like, you say you hate goth, but you have the most goth podcast of all time where you just complain about how it's always raining in the mind. Yeah. Here's another abstract thing that I was thinking about. I have this Facebook friend. I honestly don't remember meeting this person in reality ever. You know how like... When you've lived a certain number of years, like when you make it to your mid-30s and Facebook has been a thing now for decades, there are people that we just sort of like lackadaisically Facebook friended them decades ago and we don't even know who they are. And if, you, if you're not curating your feed, there's people on there that I get all this information about. I don't know who these people, I don't know who I know these people. I can vaguely pinpoint it to what era based on mutual friends. I think this is someone I know from my years in Shanghai 15 years ago. But so, <clears throat> this is good actually. I kept it real anonymous who the guy is because it's really, the particulars of the story are, nah, it's fine actually because it's all on Facebook. The whole point of it is the public angle. I can talk about this. I have a friend, he was talking about how, he basically is like, the woman who raised me, who adopted me, abused me psychologically it's what he said and then you read this and it's so hard with these stories because the stories that he's putting up there are like full of screenshots of the woman saying that he abused her and what do you do with that you know and then so for a period there I'm just withholding judgment I guess I look at it and I'm like, it really seemed like there was some human suffering here, but I don't know who to side with. And it's really set up as a thing where you have to side with someone. You can't just, you can't have two people saying they abused each other and you can't side with both of them. You have to pick a side. And then I'm reading it. And then there was one thing he wrote 
which just was the tipping point for me, where I sided with him. He's, he wrote something like, if all of this feels extreme and exhibitionistic, it's because it's the first time I'm revealing my side of things. I've spent 28 years pretending otherwise and pretending like things are fine. And this is the first time I'm talking about this out loud. And I have to talk about this thing out loud. And I have to put this on Facebook to feel, to free myself of this, which is, you know, something I believe in. I believe in the freedom of oversharing and the, I mean, it's an AA thing. It's only half of it is an AA thing. The AA is a little bit crotchety because AA really wants you to share with one person in private, share everything with one person. And then AA wants you to have this realization that all of your secrets that you think makes you the worst person in the universe, we all have those secrets. And it all we're all just man amongst men here, you know? We're all the same. We are, we're all sinners and it's all fine. And you can say it out loud and you can take all the the weight out of it and you can be free. Just say it out loud to another person. And then we do this thing in the modern world, which is a little bit beyond what AA wants you to do, which is that you say it on the internet. You know, you just say it on a podcast about sparkling water. Or you say it on Facebook in screenshots. Or you write it in your notes app and then you take a screenshot of the note that you wrote on your iPhone, and then you put that screenshot on Twitter. You know? Some of the most honest (laughs) things. Like, some of these vehicles are so weird, but some of the most honest, raw documents of beautiful, pure, emotional, human, perfect writing are written in the Notes app, which is then taken a screenshot of, which is then posted on Twitter. How weird is that vehicle? But but anyway, what I what I wanted to talk about because I think it's so fucking interesting is the tipping point where you are approached with like you're confronted with a story where there's someone who's bad and someone who's a victim and someone who's not and maybe everyone's a victim, everyone, whatever the truth is. But you're confronted with them and in the early moments, you don't know what to think. And then there's a tipping point where you get information that tips you over so you decide that, nah, I'm siding with that guy. And so this guy was like, I've been hiding this for 28 years, how bad this woman's been telling me, treating me. And then the comments to that is some guy who's like, yeah, I remember 15 years ago, you couldn't even be at her house because your mom, I mean, they called her mom, but it's really, it's like an Asian woman that it adopted. It's an Asian woman in America who adopted three Middle Eastern kids and then abused the shit out of them. <sighs> That's something to burp about, huh? Let's have another sip of this fucking liquid death. God, Elden Ring in a can. Real fucking six out of ten. Um, there's this thing where, like, um, he said that 28 years he's been hiding it and then this other guy commented and was like yeah there was a time when you were a teenager where you couldn't even be at the house and you had to be at my house and she because i took care of you there because i let you stay at my house the psycho woman 
accused me of a bunch of things. Like I was just trying to ha let you have a place to stay and be okay. I just, I just want to like take in a fucking badgered teen. And this woman starts accusing me of a bunch of weird shit. So this woman is clearly psycho. And so those things taken together of this like third hand account of a third party guy who is in the comments section here made me side with him. But it's so interesting that the tipping point, because it's also like there's this Johnny Depp, Amber Heard story where everyone in Seattle is like, oh, Johnny Depp is pretending to be a victim. And that's a, an age-old abuser tactic, pretend to be the victim. But it's like, I don't know. I don't know that he's not a victim. Maybe he is a victim. Probably not, but... I don't know. It's one of those things where... It's one of the big questions in modern society. We pretend like we have a good compass and philosophy and doctrine for deciding who's shitty. Who's the victim? We pretend like we know how to decide who's the victim, but we don't. And it's a big problem. It's a big problem. Anyway, <clears throat> that's the episode because Javi came home and as we've covered many times on the pod, if I know that there's a human being within a hundred feet, I'm completely emotionally closed. So that's the episode. Thank you for listening, everyone. And I love you. <laughs>